At the turn of the 20th century, there was a growing interest in the afterlife, and with it, interest in spiritualism. The religious movement was based on the belief that the living could communicate with the dead. Mind readers, fortune tellers, and mystics sold spiritualism to heartbroken folks, missing lost parents, lovers, or children. And amongst those they converted was none other than renowned author and creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes is best known as an ultra-rational character, one who used logic to deduce the truth, albeit in incredible ways. But Arthur himself was happy to declare anything that he didn't understand to be the work of spirits. Not everyone bought into the craze, however. Harry Houdini, the world's most famous magician, was a friend of Arthur's, at least until he became one of the leading skeptics of spiritualism and set out on a quest to debunk and disprove the mysteries of the living dead. This quest drove two titans of early 20th century culture into a bitter rivalry, which came to a mysterious end on Halloween night, 1926. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their legacies are inextricably intertwined. We'll look at their lives side by side to see how their paths converged, how they impacted one another's fates, and ultimately, how they were remembered. In this episode, we'll be examining the unique friendship between two of the most well-known and important figures from the turn of the 20th century, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini. We'll also dissect the two men's opposing beliefs on spiritualism. Beliefs so strong, they may have ended in a diabolical conspiracy to kill. Coming up, the birth of Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini's friendship. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Just because you're working out doesn't mean you shouldn't look fabulous. The Inspire Collection by Kalia was designed with both style and performance in mind. It looks good, feels good, and stays put no matter how you move. And the collection has everything you need for a day at the gym. A support bra, crop tanks, bike shorts, amazing leggings, and more. It's their most versatile collection yet. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. A young Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle wanted to get away from his father's struggle with alcoholism. But once he did, he hated the harsh teaching methods and medieval principles of his Jesuit boarding schools, too. 
One of the first, Stonyhurst College, favored corporal punishment and ritual humiliation when disciplining its students. For a young boy who had already seen that religion couldn't save a man from alcoholism, this harsh treatment in the name of God was the final straw. He couldn't follow the traditional Catholic religion of his family. Instead, he turned to the position of the skeptic, agnosticism, or the belief that God may or may not be real. We simply can't know. But Arthur was still young, and for all society's failings, Life was full of promise, even good. Perhaps that's why he decided he wanted to become a doctor. That is, until he discovered another way to bring order and hope to the sometimes depressing mysteries of the world, writing. He started with short stories, and in 1879, at age 20, he published one of them, The Mystery of Sasasa Valley, a story about a demon with glowing eyes. Arthur's love for writing soon began to outpace his ambition for medicine, but he still had to make a living. So in June 1882, after graduating medical school, he headed for Portsmouth, England to establish a medical practice. Unfortunately for Arthur, the practice wasn't very successful. For roughly five years, he constantly waited for patients to arrive, but few did. So in order to kill time, Arthur continued to write. In November 1887, a novel from the 27-year-old's growing stack of manuscripts was finally published. It was called A Study in Scarlet, and it introduced the world to a peculiar and brilliant detective, Sherlock Holmes. The work was a mild success, and in combination with good reviews, that success was enough to convince Arthur that even in the interest of practicality, writing might make more sense than medicine. His hope was warranted. With every work published, Sherlock Holmes grew in popularity and eventually became the beloved subject of three more novels and 56 short stories. To this day, over 100 years later, the hyper-rational detective and his partner, Dr. John Watson, remain standbys in popular culture, continuously showing up in film and television adaptations. But Sherlock Holmes wasn't the only character Arthur invented. In the early 1910s, a now middle-aged Arthur was looking for new ways to navigate the world without the comforting structure of traditional religion. Holmes' rationality wasn't doing it for him any longer. So in 1912, he published the science fiction novel The Lost World and introduced his readers to Professor Challenger. Challenger was a stark contrast to Sherlock Holmes. The irascible scientist goes on larger-than-life adventures, encountering fantastical things such as dinosaurs, outer space, and the supernatural. But for Arthur, these stories weren't just fiction. Arthur had always been intrigued by the mystical and paranormal. But in 1907, intrigue turned to belief when he married Jean Leckie, a self-proclaimed psychic who often held seances. Jean drew him deep into the world of spiritualism and in the process brought someone new into his life, Harry Houdini. In the early 20th century, magic as a form of entertainment was immensely popular, and Harry Houdini at the top of his field. 
Houdini got his start early, back when his name was Eric Weiss and his immigrant family was struggling to make ends meet in their new home, the American Midwest. Little Eric wanted to help and at six years old became a master of the classic three-cup scam. Thanks to his gift for the sleight of hand, he was able to make money on street corners, conning people out of their money. At the same time, he learned to use his natural athleticism to impress and distract his targets by doing acrobatics. One day, the circus came to town, and Eric took the opportunity to show off his abilities to the circus manager, who was so impressed, he hired nine-year-old Eric as part of the trapeze act. On October 28, 1883, he made his big stage debut as Eric, the Prince of the Air. But his time in the circus was brief. In 1887, Eric's father took the family to New York City with hopes that he and his son could turn things around financially in the burgeoning metropolis. In the Big Apple, Eric shined shoes, sold newspapers, and did whatever jobs he could to earn a quick buck. But he also discovered all the new kinds of entertainment available in the metropolis, including vaudeville and magic. Inspired by these acts, Eric quickly began performing wherever he could. And by 1894, at the age of 20, he'd launched his career as a professional magician under the name Harry Houdini. Initially, Harry's card tricks and sleight-of-hand illusions weren't well-received. But what did interest and excite people was his flair for theatrical escapism. Harry could pick locks, so he harnessed that ability and used it during his shows, wowing people by escaping from handcuffs with ease. In 1899, his big professional break came in the form of vaudeville manager Martin Beck, who convinced Harry to focus completely on the escape artist part of his act. Beck began booking Harry at some of the top vaudeville venues in the country and eventually set him up with a European tour. Where his act quickly became a sensation. Oftentimes, Harry's show involved escaping out of police handcuffs. He would have local police strip-search him, place him in shackles, and lock him in their jails. And in no time at all, he was magically on the other side of the bars. And although this was a popular trick, Harry wasn't content with just being the handcuff king. He was determined to up the ante. So as the years went by, he went from escaping out of handcuffs to straitjackets to locked, water-filled tanks. Culminating in the hallmark of his career, the Chinese water torture cell. The trick was first unveiled in 1912 when Harry was 38. The magician was suspended upside down by his feet, then lowered down into a locked glass cabinet filled with water, which meant that he was holding his breath for the entirety of his escape which he accomplished in three short minutes. The Chinese water torture cell became a staple of Harry's act, but he also expanded his career in other directions, including writing. He published several books, some of which focused on debunking other magicians and their supernatural claims. He was passionate about these arguments because the more Harry mastered the craft of fooling people with practical illusions, the more his skepticism for psychics and mediums grew. So when Harry came to England in 1920, 
he set out to spread the good word and had promotional copies of his most recent book sent to 200 or so of the country's leading figures. Including Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur wrote to Harry, thanking him for the book. This simple exchange began a correspondence fueled by mutual interest in spiritualism, although interest inclined towards different views. And the correspondence led to an invitation. On Wednesday, April 14, 1920, 46-year-old Harry visited Arthur and Jean at their home in England for the first time, and almost immediately, the conversation turned to spiritualism. Arthur was insistent that the world was full of inexplicable and thus supernatural phenomena. Conversely, Harry was hell-bent on proving that anyone who claimed supernatural powers was a charlatan. But somehow, despite their deeply differing beliefs, the two men got along and struck up a friendship. A friendship that always included each man trying to win over the other to his own beliefs on spiritualism. After all, what better way to hone your beliefs than to convince a skeptic that you're correct? Each man had a mission to convince his friend that they were wrong about the century's favorite cult of the dead. Coming up, Harry and Arthur use every trick in the book to win the argument of a lifetime. Now back to the story. In 1920, Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle began an unlikely friendship. The pair could not have been more different, and yet their mutual interest in communicating with the dead formed the basis of one of the strangest relationships in the 20th century. Often their friendship operated from a distance. In many respects, they were close pen pals. They constantly exchanged letters while Harry was on tour performing. In their letters, they playfully poked fun at one another's beliefs and challenged one another with questions or stories. But no one was winning this burgeoning battle of competing beliefs. The more Arthur insisted that mystics and psychics could communicate with the dead, the more Harry pushed in the opposite direction. While Harry didn't argue that someone couldn't communicate with the afterlife, he was certain that everyone he'd encountered who claimed they had was full of it. So to win the competition of wills, Harry turned to a personal story of belief and betrayal. It all began with the death of his father in October 1892. Just 18 at the time, Harry was desperate to speak with his dad, so he sold his watch in order to pay a psychic, who informed him that his father was present and said he was happy. Harry thought this very strange, considering the dire financial straits that his father's death had left the family in. Didn't his father feel bad for those he'd left behind? This so-called psychic had to be a fake, but still, Harry held on to the belief that there were legitimate sensitives out there in the world who really could communicate with the afterlife. So he tried again, and again. But Harry's desire to find someone to communicate with the dead was constantly met with disappointment, especially as his knowledge of the tricks of the trade grew. After all, he employed them himself to earn a buck or two. Early in his career, before he found fame as an escape artist, Harry and his wife, Bess, were not above drawing on their own theatrical skills to give public seances on the vaudeville circuit. 
In November of 1897, 23-year-old Harry performed to a packed house in Garnett, Kansas. Billed as the world-famous medium, a spiritualistic seance was part of the show. Of the 6,000 residents in Garnett, over 1,000 attended, hoping to see some ghoulish phenomena that would blow their minds. And blow their minds he did. During the show, Harry made prophetic accusations about audience members. He claimed one attendee was cruelly neglecting to tend his own mother's grave, despite enjoying many merry excursions with his lovely secretary. This caused the man in question to stand up from his seat and run out of the theater in shame, stunning the crowd. Next, Harry predicted that a woman in the audience was surely thinking of her recently deceased baby, Louise, whom the Lord has been pleased to call at an early age. He then looked up to the heavens while shielding his eyes and proclaimed, Louise and many others are here with us tonight. The crowd audibly gasped. No one could believe what they had just witnessed. Of course, ever the showman, Harry saved the best for his finale. The brutal yet mysterious death of Sadie Timmons had rocked the town of Garnett to its core, and Harry claimed that he was going to reveal to the audience that night just who the killer was. But he wasn't able to do it alone. Harry turned to the audience and shouted, You cannot hide a nefarious deed from the spirits, and Mademoiselle Beatrice, a trained psychometric clairvoyant, will assist me. Mademoiselle Beatrice was actually Harry's wife, Bess. Bess made her way to the stage, where she was promptly blindfolded and sat in a chair. As Harry began to put her in a trance, she slumped over. He then started to ask her questions about the murder. Where did the murder occur? How was it done? Was Sadie Timmons at home when it happened? How many times was she stabbed? Bess answered all of them in a low moan, keeping the audience captivated. But then they were brought to silence as they waited for her to answer one more question. Did Sadie Timmons know her killer? She quietly replied, yes. The audience roared in gasps and howls, and it took Harry a few moments to get the crowd to quiet down again. When there was silence, Harry dramatically asked Bess for the killer's name. But Bess said nothing. Harry repeatedly asked over and over and over for the killer's name. The crowd was on the edge of their seat. Finally, Houdini screamed at the top of his lungs, What is the killer's name? In a stunning display, Bess reacted by flailing around wildly and then suddenly stopping. She rolled her head to the side, going limp. Harry turned to the audience and said, She's fainted. Houdini approached the edge of the stage, facing the audience, and asked if there was a doctor. And before a doctor could emerge, the curtain fell. A shocked audience rose to their feet in awe and confusion, without an answer to the burning question. Decades later, Harry admitted that before the show that night, he had gone to the local cemetery in Garnett, Kansas, with a pencil and paper, and went around writing down names and information from headstones. Any information he wasn't able to get from the headstones, he was able to get from the local groundskeeper, who was happy to gossip about the living townsfolk. 
In his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, Harry wrote, I have associated myself with mediums, joining the rank and file and holding seances as an independent medium to fathom the truth of it all. Later in the book, Harry has apparently come to his conclusion about the truth of it all. He states, Spiritualism is nothing more or less than mental intoxication. Intoxication of any sort when it becomes a habit is injurious to the body, but intoxication of the mind is always fatal to the mind. It took years for Harry to ultimately come to this conclusion. Night after night, he attended seances and watched as these mystics employed the exact same tricks that he himself used. So he explained to Arthur Conan Doyle through letter after letter. But Doyle had his stories to share, too. For him, it had all begun with agnosticism and then with his spiritualist wife, Jean. But it was World War I and the seemingly constant stream of deaths that cemented his belief in the supernatural. The worldwide pain of the war inspired Arthur with the idea that spiritualism was a so-called new revelation sent by God to bring solace to the bereaved. The idea that the human soul not only lives on after the body dies, but can be accessed by the living was incredibly comforting for Arthur in the face of so much trauma. Arthur only leaned further into the concept when his son died of complications from battle wounds in 1918. So Arthur began lecturing on spiritualism, and in 1918, he published his first spiritualist work, The New Revelation. And as Arthur went around lecturing on spiritualism, he also sought out stories that would validate his beliefs. One of the first stories he turned up was in 1917, when a set of strange photos hit the press. The photographs depicted two teenage girls frolicking in a wooded stream, seemingly surrounded by small cherubic-winged fairies. These quickly became known as the Cottingley Fairies, and Arthur was immediately taken with them. He highlighted them for an article he was writing about fairies for the Christmas 1920 issue of The Strand magazine. Later, Arthur published a book called The Coming of the Fairies, which again leaned heavily on the Cottingley Fairies photographs. He hoped that if he could get people to believe in fairies, then it would make it easier for them to believe in spiritualism and the many unbelievable aspects that came with it. Unfortunately, the photographs were a complete hoax. Long after Arthur's death, the girls who took the Cottingley Fairies photographs admitted that they manipulated the photographs, adding in drawings that looked like little fairies. These illustrations were copied from pictures of dancing girls in a popular children's book of the time, Princess Mary's Gift Book. They simply added wings to the figures. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle insisted to his friend Harry that these photographs were proof of the supernatural. Harry Houdini was not won over by Arthur's stories. And as he grew more frustrated with his friend's dogmatic beliefs, his letters to Arthur acquired an increasingly rude tone. Arthur chalked up Harry's attitude to his theatricality. He suggested to Harry that maybe a simple magician might not know what the devil he was talking about. Soon after that, at a talk in early 1922, 
Harry said that Arthur's beliefs were nonsense and announced that he would tear Arthur to pieces. He also began to insinuate that Jean Doyle, the self-proclaimed medium, was a fraud. With that, the contest was no longer a friendly, if passionate, exchange of views. It was a war. And Arthur thought he had the winning tactic, a seance with Jean, whom he was sure was a real, powerful medium. The purpose of the seance would be to communicate with Harry's beloved mother. Harry reluctantly agreed to attend. Even now, he wanted to believe that he might be able to communicate with lost loved ones. And if he couldn't, well, he'd have won this debate with Arthur once and for all. And if his friendship with Arthur had to end in the interest of the truth, well, so be it. Coming up... Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle face the ultimate test to spiritualism and their friendship. Now back to the story. When Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini began their friendship in 1920, it was based around their mutual interest in spiritualism. Though they had staunchly opposing views, their debate about the believability of spiritualism was interesting and exciting for both of them. At least at first, But as both of them found the debate slowing to a stalemate, with neither willing to shift his views, their cordiality turned into nasty jabs, including some choice comments from Harry about Arthur's wife, Jean, a self-described medium. In order to set the record straight and prove whether or not Jean was a fraud, the three decided to hold a seance in Atlantic City in 1922. Arthur claimed that Jean could communicate with Harry's deceased mother. During the seance, Jean would make contact through automatic writing, a process in which a medium puts pen to paper and lets the spirits write through her hand. Despite his stringent skepticism, Harry showed up harboring a bit of hope that Jean Doyle's spiritual powers were real. Perhaps this was going to be the one. Aside from a few lit candles, the room was in total darkness. Everyone sat in a circle, waiting intently for what Jean Doyle, or the spirits, had to say. Harry kept quiet and watched carefully as the process began. For several minutes, Jean furiously scribbled down over 15 pages of messages, supposedly from Harry's mother to Harry. And with each passing message, Harry became increasingly stone-faced. It wasn't the content of the message itself that bothered him, as it had 30 years earlier during his father's seance. In fact, most of the information refrained from mentioning specifics regarding Harry's life or connection to his mother. What silenced Harry was the fact that the messages came in English. Harry's mother spoke Yiddish and didn't speak or write in English at all. All 15 or so pages of Lady Doyle's messages were written in English. Adding to the strangeness was the fact that his devoutly Jewish mother began the message with the words, Merry Christmas, something Harry knew that his mother would never say in any language. Meanwhile, Arthur watched his wife and was convinced that she had proven to Harry that mediums, the paranormal, and spiritualism were all real. Quite the opposite. In fact, by the end of the seance, as Harry quietly left the room, 
He was finally fully convinced that there would never be a medium who could communicate with the dead. It was now his mission to debunk spiritualism in its entirety. Even if it destroyed his friendship with Arthur Conan Doyle. Though he still performed stage magic from time to time, Harry Houdini's late career was devoted to touring around the world and convincing everyone of the lies of spiritualism. He claimed that all mediums were actually con artists who were just preying on the emotions of the grieving for financial gain. As Harry traveled from seance to seance, he often dressed in a disguise, waiting for an opportune moment to reveal himself. When the time was right to debunk the medium's powers, Harry would throw his disguise off and shout, I am Houdini, ruining the seance. But merely ruining a seance wasn't enough for Harry. He wanted to give an extra incentive to draw these con artists out of the woodwork. So he offered a cash reward to anyone who could prove their supernatural abilities. Naturally, this brought forward a bevy of supposed psychics confident enough in their skills that they could pass the test and score the cash prize. Mina Crandon was a well-known psychic medium going by the name of Marjorie, and on June 23, 1924, she entered Harry's competition, sponsored by none other than Arthur Conan Doyle. One month later, Harry and other prize committee members came to Marjorie and her husband's home in Boston, Massachusetts. For the next two days, they conducted two seances. During the performance, Harry was able to deduce, in the style of Sherlock Holmes, how Marjorie produced her seemingly supernatural effects. Part of her seance involved her asking any spirits in the room to ring a bell sitting on a table. Harry surmised that Marjorie must be ringing the bell under the table with her foot. To prove this, Harry asked Marjorie to be partially restrained via a device called a median control. Median control was a box that she could sit in, locking her feet in place inside a cabinet. While restrained, Marjorie would be unable to pull any hidden strings or levers. And lo and behold, while Marjorie was in the median control box, no bell rang, proving that Marjorie was indeed a fraud and that Harry Houdini was right. Harry's quest proved plenty of other so-called mediums of the time to be frauds, many of them associates of Arthur Conan Doyle. Some, including the famous spiritualist couple Julius and Agnes Zanzig, even confessed to their lies. As for Harry's cash prize, no one ever claimed the money because not one person was ever able to prove definitively that they were the real deal, a psychic medium with powers beyond our scope of reality. Meanwhile, Arthur and his fellow spiritualists were furious with Harry, and they wanted his antics to stop, or else. In a November 1924 letter, Arthur wrote that Harry would get his just desserts very exactly meted out. I think there is a general payday coming soon. This was a clear threat that if Harry didn't stop what he was doing, he would certainly face some consequences from the opposition. In late October 1926, 52-year-old Harry Houdini was at the Princess Theatre in Montreal, Canada to perform one of his famous death-defying escapes. 
While in his dressing room, he was approached by Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead, a student of McGill University. By now, Harry had a reputation of being impervious to punches to the stomach. Whitehead wanted to see if this was true. Without giving Harry a chance to prepare himself, Whitehead allegedly punched Harry in the gut several times. Despite being in a tremendous amount of pain, Harry refused to see a doctor. Instead, he chose to carry on with his performance. Two days later, Harry went to a doctor with a 102-degree fever and acute appendicitis. But because he had a show that night, Harry refused surgery. On October 24, 1926, Harry performed at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan. During the performance, his fever rose to 104 degrees, and he reportedly passed out on stage. He was revived and continued the show, but it would be his last. After he left the stage, he was hospitalized, and on October 31, 1926, Harry Houdini died. His final words were, I'm tired of fighting. I do not want to fight anymore. Over the years since his death, rumors have cropped up regarding the manner in which Harry Houdini died. Was he really killed by a punch to the stomach, or was it something more sinister? Some say that the spiritualists, sick of Harry humiliating them, conspired together to ensure his death, eliminating one of their most public foes. Arthur Conan Doyle did tell a fellow spiritualist that Harry's death was, quote, most certainly decreed from the other side. And mediums had been predicting Harry's death for years. Plus, in 1926, Harry testified at a U.S. Senate hearing on fraudulent mediums. At the hearing's conclusion, Madame Garcia, a self-proclaimed psychic, told Harry that he would be dead by November. Even Marjorie, the medium who Houdini debunked, publicly predicted his death in the form of a racist poem she had supposedly received from her dead brother. It's impossible to say if a fed-up spiritualist somehow put Harry's demise into motion, or if the official record is accurate and a burst appendix killed him, most likely ruptured by the blows he took to the stomach. But regardless, Harry's death gave Arthur Conan Doyle free reign to forget the arguments of the man who challenged his beliefs and throw himself fully into spiritualism. He even claimed that Harry had supernatural gifts. According to Arthur, he just tried to convince people that the paranormal was bunk in order to hide his gifts. Arthur Conan Doyle never gave up on spiritualism and wrote about it until his death in 1930. Spiritualism is still wildly popular today. Millions of people worldwide believe that they can communicate with the deceased. Look no further than palm-reading psychics that can be found in corner shops around the globe. Many people can't help but hope that there's some way to talk to their loved ones once they're gone. It's a natural reaction to grief. Of course, in a world as nefarious as ours, there will also be plenty of con artists people looking to exploit grief to make a buck. And thanks to those charlatans, skeptics will always have fuel for their disbelief. These competing worldviews brought two of the turn of the century's most famous celebrities together and then drove them apart. Without any real resolution. 
In fact, only now that they're both on the other side can Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle really tell us the truth about the dead. But we're caught in the same catch they were. Whether or not to believe that we can hear their voices arguing, proving, and disproving across the Great Divide. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Obituaries was written by Matthew McGregor, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy.